After all, we're not leveraging hours. You can't leverage an hour, an hour is an hour, but you can leverage your ideas. You can leverage your knowledge. That's Ron Baker. I'm Mark Gandy of CFO Bookshelf. As best-selling author and co-host of The Soul of Enterprise would say, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. And in this show, we'll be talking about intellectual capital and why we need to study this topic. Our focus will be what's become one of my favorite books of Ron, Mind Over Matter. This is going to be fun. Our interview with Ron Baker here on Sample Bookshelf is coming up next. What is the best compliment you can give an author about their book? You can't say, I love the book, or you could say, I've given your book to another person to read. But the best form, the best compliment I was able to give Ron about mind over matter is this. I read it. Yes, I liked it. I took a lot of notes, but guess what? I'm going to reread it before the end of the year. Out of all the books I've written, this one was the least commercially successful. Also the hardest to write. And also, according to my co-host, Ed Kless, my best book ever. I So you figure it out. I can't. I have an opinion. So I work with a lot of high dopamine CEOs. We're scaling fast. So a lot of these high dopamine CEOs, it's not that they don't want to think, but give me something that I can work with right now. You know, give give me a how-to. And this is not a how-to book. You work with a lot of professional services firms who are probably busy. You know, what can I implement right now? It's not that kind of a book. I think it's the kind of book where you read it and as you absorb it, take notes, it will start impacting your thinking without you even thinking about it. I think that's why there may be some pushback because you are the recovering accountant who's taught us value pricing. Now give us something practical. That was practical, but this is a thinking person's book. And that's my perception of why maybe the commercial success has been lacking. It's not too late, by the way. Uh, This book is brilliant. Well, thank you. Uh, I should have I should have pointed you to I ha- and I haven't read this in a long time, but two two or three academics actually wrote a review of this book a few years after it came out, and they were actually on balance very kind to it. They said Baker's bringing up some points here that need to be addressed by the accounting profession. They were accounting professors, um, but they, they said one of the problems is this book needed editing. He's got the whole Reagan. <clears throat> Moscow University speech in here. That was unnecessary. That should have been cut out. He, he doesn't even define intellectual capital until page 104 or something. Uh, they really, they really nitpicked on points like that, but they're fair. They're fair. I didn't want, I did not want to write a how to book. I wanted to write, uh, I've always been fascinated with the economy in mind. I've been fascinated with the simple question why are some countries wealthier than others? Why is it that you can look at a place like Venezuela or Russia or some of these other naturally endowed uh, countries? And, you know, Russia, uh, unbelievable intelligence in Russia. I mean, they're they're chess masters. They play chess as a sport with spectators, and yet they're boiling stones for soup. Why? That's always fascinated me. So this was kind of my explanation of why I think that is. One last comment about the book, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna embarrass you, but I still I believe 
that this would be a great starting point for any executive MBA program. I think this should be required reading. I think it would be a great book in any college setting uh, for a business one-on-one course. I'm not going to let you say anything, uh, but I do have a quick question before we jump into the book. How how long did it take you to write this? I mean, there the reason it took me about three, four weeks to read it is because I'm pausing to go through some of the references. I mean, this book probably took you maybe a year. I mean, you reference so many other works, literature, uh, other economists. Uh, The research is just mind-blowing to me. Well, that's a a great question, and and, and I'll give you a secret. Um, This book is part of a, a series of books, the Intellectual Capitalism series, which, by the way, my late uh, advisor, Paul O'Byrne, trusted advisor, I used to call him my TA, uh, he's kind of throughout the book. The book is dedicated to him. He want, he didn't want it, it to be called the Intellectual Capitalism Series. He wanted it to be called DOS Intellectual Capital. Is the antidote to Marx, which I always thought was great, but the publisher wouldn't go for that. So um, what I did, Mark, is this is this is the third book in that series. The first one was Pricing on Purpose. The second one was Measure What Matters. And the third one was Mind Over Matter. As you can tell, Zed says, I'm a fan of alliteration. Um, I actually did the research for all three books just over many years of just reading books, compiling notes from those books, putting them in in, in a, some type of a logical format where I di- first I divided it into the book, which wasn't that difficult. And then, of course, you divide that into the chapters or whatever. And that's what I did it. So that for me, the research is always the biggest part of writing a book. The actual book writing from actually like signing the contract with the publisher, Wiley in this case, um, they give you about six months from the signing of that contract to, to submit the book, uh, the manuscript first draft to them. And so it took me, and I've never been on time, by the way, probably took me six or seven months, six and a half to seven months to, to get the book written. And to do that, I usually hold up in places that inspire me, like Lake Tahoe, or I love Seattle um, in, in good weather. Um, and I would just go up there and stay in a hotel for a week and just just let the book absorb into me. Uh, Ayn Rand used to say, I'm with novel. And now I totally get that because when she was writing a novel, your whole life is just involved in that book. As you know, you just wrote a book. You know how it just lives in you. And everything you see is through the prism of that book. It's so strange. And I found I needed to just be a getaway and be alone to be able to get that. You are the Ryan Holiday of economics because I'm thinking of the way he does his research sounds very, very similar. Hey, before we get into the book itself, where wealth comes from, which we'll go ahead and set it up. We, we're going to be talking about intellectual capital. But before we get into the heart of the book, I want to just ask you, uh, this may be maybe the, the most basic, fundamental ABC question you've ever had. What is the purpose of economics? Why, Or maybe a better question, why should we even study it? It's a great question. And, and there's lots of different answers from the economists themselves. Uh, I used to teach a course called Everyday Economics, and I gave all the various definitions. You know, economists is the normal daily interaction of life. Economics is the 
study of scarcity, you know, unlimited wants in, in a scarce uh, world, you know. Um, but to me, over the years, what I've learned, it, the, the study of economics is it's more of a way of thinking. It's like a toolbox that gives you a way of thinking. And to me, is scarcity definitely plays a part. I mean, we have uh, our, our, our knowledge is scarce. Uh, people think, well, knowledge is free now. We have the internet. No, no, that's data and information. That's far from knowledge. Knowledge is tacit. It's expensive. I know we can talk about that. Um, so I, I, I think scarcity does play a role. I think understanding human behavior, I think economists have a lot to say about human behavior, probably as much, if not more than psychiatrists. I also think that economists are fantastic with trade-offs. Everything we do has a trade-off. Um, and to me, that's really critical to understand that there are trade-offs in the world. And nothing's a better teacher of that than this last year and a half with COVID. Lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, passports, all of that. It's all trade-offs. You know, this idea of, well, if it saves one life, it's just, well, that's just ridiculous. Nobody lives their life that way. Otherwise, you know, before you got in your car, you'd do a 32-point inspection, maybe even take it to the mechanic before you drove anywhere to check everything was fine. We don't do that. We take risks. Life is risk. Business is risk. Profits come from risk. So um, I think the study of trade-offs, I'm, you know, my favorite line is from Thomas Sowell, and that is, there are no solutions there are only trade-offs. The only people who talk in solutions are politicians. A good economist, you'll never hear the word solution from them on any public policy question. Great point. I love your show. I love listening to you and Ed every week. Love the soul of enterprise. And I've been educated just some of the great economic thought. You brought on some of the great economic thinkers of our era. It's just, it's been very educational. So why is it that Marx, his ideas still permeate? Uh, why does he still have a, a some type of a vice around our minds? We may think, oh, no, no. For those of us living in the, in, in, in say the U.S., where most of our listeners are, they're thinking uh, he, he doesn't have any influence. I beg to differ. I know it's a colloquialism, but have you ever talked to someone who says, well, why don't you quit doing that project? No, I got a lot of time into it, as in that's where the value is, time. Why does Mark still have this, the, the, this, why is his shadow still cast over us? Probably for the same reason Frederick Taylor's is with the whole efficiency issue. It, it's a great question, Mark. Uh, it's it, and, and Ed and I used to get in a lot of trouble for calling practitioners or business people who engaged in hourly pricing or even cost plus pricing, we call them practicing Marxists. We got a lot of pushback on that because you don't call an American a practicing Marxist. They take offense to that almost immediately. Right. It's so funny when you talk about that in Europe, if you're talking to a German or an Englishman, they understand it. They I wanted to know where these ideas came from. Where did cost plus pricing come from? Where did hourly billing come from? I'm always interested in tracing back to the antecedents of these ideas because that way you can find out if they're still relevant. And I think, pretty sure I can claim this, I'm the first guy to make the link between hourly billing and Marx's labor theory of value. 
Um, I think the reason that theory of value has hung around so long, it's not because it's coded in Marxist language and, you know, people come out of college radicalized with Marxist thought. Uh, today's Marxists have never picked up a book by Marx. It's one of the things Thomas Sowell points out, who used to be a Marxist, uh, even through his days at University of Chicago, as he was getting a degree under Melton Friedman, of all people. He was still a Marxist. Um, but they, but your typical Marxist believer doesn't, has never read the book, um, or grappled with, with why the labor theory of value is wrong. But, but that, that, that labor theory makes intuitive sense. If I spend more time on a chair, a piano, nice piece of furniture, of course it's going to have a higher price than if I'm cranking out those same things on an assembly line because of economies of scale and, and, you know, lower costs of production, all that. We've always tied labor to value. I think, um, an acre in medieval English means the amount of land that can be plowed by a, a group of horses in a day or something. We've, we get hourly wages to this date. Um, so we've always tied labor, uh, to, to value and then just adding the cost which even Adam Smith did, by the way, he had this sum up value theory that you, you added up all your costs, at, but of course he liked profit. So you could add profit as a cost, um, but it, it's still wrong. And and when you learn the subjective theory of value, you learn, wait a minute, it's not costs that determine price. It's price that justifies costs. And that bends your head around. But once you get that, I think, you just look at everything that's labor theory of value and go, well, that's not the way the world works. I loved your new business formula. Now I'm calling it new because it's one we may not think about, but you've got intellectual capital times price times effectiveness, sir. Where'd that come from? (laughs) It came from my good friend and colleague, Rick Payne, who wrote the original uh, practice equation that I used to teach, by the way, uh, when I worked with him and his organization, which I believe was something like revenue equaled, um, you, you know, labor hours capa- or capacity, but say right. labor hours, this is for a CPA firm, times efficiency or you know, say utilization, say realization, whatever you want, but let's just call it efficiency times hourly rate. Now, that is certainly the way most CPA firms run today, certainly the big four, although they are starting to recognize the, the problems with this model. Um, and for a long time, I would teach that with my other colleague, Paul Dunn, who me and him wrote the firm of the future together. And we wrote the firm of the future because we did not like that original equation that my other buddy, Rick Bain, came up with. And so I, it, I sat there and looked at that equation for probably a year and a half before it dawned on me, this is way off. This doesn't explain anything. And then I started putting together intellectual capital, effectiveness over efficiency, certainly value pricing over hourly pricing, and certainly intellectual capital or, or at least human capital over labor hours. After all, we're not leveraging hours. You can't leverage an hour. An hour is an hour. Um, but you can leverage your ideas. You can leverage your knowledge. Uh, it's, it's what economists call a non-rival asset. So 
if I give you the tie off my shirt, which I'm not wearing, but if I was, now you'd have my tie and I wouldn't. That's a rival asset. It can only be at one place at one time. But if I give you knowledge, now we both have it. I certainly don't lose it. Thomas Jefferson used to say, this is like, I can light your candle for mine and not lose any light. Um, and now we both have it and we can expand on that knowledge. You can go take it out, tweak it, you know, and maybe it will come back to me in some manner of a presentation you do or show you do or whatever. Uh, knowledge has got ever increasing returns. It doesn't have, you know, decreasing returns over time. And that's what knowledge workers are leveraging. And in fact, that's what a lot of businesses are leveraging. General Motors knows how to build cars, right? They're leveraging that knowledge and, and all of that. So that fascinated me. And, and to me, that that idea of a non-rival asset that can be in more than one place at one time, that opens up just, you know, a plethora of opportunity for businesses to create wealth. By the way, for the future, first Ron Baker book I ever read, 2004, still one of the top, probably one of my top 25 business books of all time. Every financial leader should read The Firm of the Future. I know that's a, that's a plug. I can't help it. It's still That's high praise though, Mark, it's given still, how many it, books you read. It's still relevant. <laughs> the book is relevant. That's what amazes me. If you were to read that book today, it doesn't matter that it was written almost 20 years ago, or it's about 20 years old. Hey, before we get into intellectual capital, I liked the conversation you had about uh, theories, theory. Uh, theories explain, predict, prescribe. So let's think with the the CEO, the professional services firm, chief executive officer, the leadership team, the management team. Why should they care about this whole concept of theories or theory in business? Because if you think about it, theory lets us make sense of the world, right? I'm sitting in a building, you're sitting in a building that is standing and not collapsing around us because of a theory. We get on an airplane and we fly through the air and with no understanding of physics, at least not me, uh, because of a theory. Um, theories build bridges. They keep buildings up. I mean, they do all sorts of things. We all have theories. Some are recognized, some aren't. So this idea, like the old practice equation that we talked about, labor hours times, you know, um, utilization times hourly rate, that's a theory. <laughs> now, you, you know, I, I don't think most people think of it as a theory, but that's the, what Peter Drucker used to call the theory of the firm, theory of the business. It's a business model, but it's a theory. Um, if we can, if we can improve upon that theory, why wouldn't we want to? So, if a theory can explain, predict, or prescribe behavior, then it's very useful. Not to say that we can predict the future, because I don't think anybody can, but it allows us to at least explain what's happened and have some type of, you know, we're, we're, we're pattern-seeking people. We look for cause and effect, and that's what theory enables you to do. If I do X, then Y will happen. Now, we would like total control, which we'll never have, as, again, I think this COVID thing has taught us very well, the modeling. You know, all models are wrong. <laughs> Some are useful. Um, but so the theory, I think, is really important. The other thing, and this was what frustrates me about business books, most business books will say something literally like in the first 10 pages – this book contains no theory. This is practical ideas you can use Monday morning in the office. When I see that, I know the book is going to be like reading the phone book. No theory, no learning. 
Otherwise, you're just giving me data and information checklist. Now, sure, there could be concepts in there that are really good, useful, whatever. But without a richer, deeper context, without that theory, there is no learning. Uh, Dr. Deming made this point. Peter Drucker makes this point. Economists have been making this point. Um, and we can even apply it to accounting. I mean, we're both CPAs. You, we started our career at the same place, KPMG, uh, Pete Mark Mitchell back in the day. And you look at the accounting equation, assets minus liabilities equals capital. That's not a theory. It's a tautology. It's an equation that's true by definition. So it can't predict, it can't control, can't prescribe. This is why accountants have trouble with valuing things. This is why we have this plug number called goodwill, right? Which is a term for our ignorance. Um, theory is critical. And yet we're kind of, it's drilled out of us in business schools and in MBA programs. Certainly people just, they have this like knee jack, knee jerk reaction to theory. And I don't understand it because there is nothing, nothing more practical than a good theory. We could have a whole show on this. I would also add that not only do we need to embrace theory in the business, we need to be testing, continually testing, not just one, but multiple theories until we get it right. Oh, when we get it right, it's time to test some more before someone else comes in with their intellectual capital and starts to eat us up. But, right. um, and by the way, I've learned that from you and Ed. So let's get into the heart of the book. The heart of the book is really where does where does value come from and your premise is intellectual capital and very difficult, if not impossible, to dispute that. So let's let me start out with this simple question. Intellectual capital. Do we need to distinguish between intellectual capital and intellectual property? Is that even a good question? Is is that a relevant question to ask? Oh, I think it is, because if you're around attorneys or even business people, we love to say IP. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Exactly. IP is part of IC, but IC is a much broader um, encompassing notion than just IP. I would put IP, things like patents and copyrights right. and trademarks uh, and other things that we could, that lawyers or accountants consider IP that would probably fall under structural capital. Yes. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting question. Who owns Coca-Cola's brand? You might actually put that under social capital because at the end of the day, the consumer owns the brand. If you really think deeply about it, not from a legal standpoint, I realize that shareholders get to monetize the Coca-Cola brand and all of that. But you put out something like New Coke and your customers revolt. You tell me who owns the brand. Uh, I think the customers do so, but yeah, uh, IC is just a broader conception uh, than than merely IP. IP is just one little part of IC. I love how you define, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say the word the three intellectual capitals. There's probably more, but you define three intellectual capitals. I'm gonna let you share what they are. And by the way, this was. This was a big learning point for me and just listening to The Soul of Enterprise. I'd never thought about this. And then finally, I read the book this year. So, oh, this is where a lot of this comes from. But what are the three intellectual capitals? Yeah, and this is a framework uh, put out by the uh, um, Australian writer, Carl Eric Sevby. And I'm not sure of the pronunciation. It's S-V-E-I-B-Y. 
he's the one that put this framework out because there's there's different ways you could cut it. Maybe we can talk about that. But he laid out human capital, which is the stuff in between our ears. It's all that knowledge, that tacit that tacit knowledge that we have and explicit knowledge and also our our ongoing ability to learn right and grow uh, our, our knowledge base as individuals and as organizations. If you think about it, organizations don't learn, right? The people inside them learn. Now, I realize what an organization is trying to do is take some of that learning and put it somewhere where they can reuse it. So that's what structural capital is. Structural capital is what's, what's left in the business after the humans go home at night. So all of your tools, plants, assets, resources, human resources guide, strategy, marketing plans, all, all of that stuff, your computers, your, your, your software, that's all structural capital that the firm does own. That's probably partly on their balance sheet. It would include their IP. Um, and then of course there's social capital, which is your alumni, which is your customer base, which is your, you know, um, the, the vendors that you do business with, uh, all of these, the associations you're part of, all of that, but that's all leverageable as well from a wealth creating standpoint. I mean, being able to network with you and have conversations with you, listening to your show, I might get an idea that I'm able to use on one of my customers to create wealth. That's, that's incredible leverage with social capital. It's probably the least understood of the three categories. And what's interesting, Mark, it's the interplay of the three that matter. All three interplay with one another. And actually, intellectual capital is not a noun. It's actually a verb, right? And so those three combined uh, really create the wealth-producing capacity of any business, at least the way I see it. Uh, and human capital, just to put a real fine point on it, according to the World Bank, does these fascinating reports called uh, where is the wealth of nations? Um, I think they've done two of them and they've concluded that if you look at the OECD countries, so, you know, the, the G 20 countries, essentially the rich developed world, 80% of the wealth in those countries is in our minds. It's not oil under the ground. It's not natural resources. Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, these places have no natural resources. They have to import practically everything. Um, they certainly don't have the gold or some of the rare earth minerals that other countries do. And yet they have some of the highest standard of living in the world because they're a great place for human capital. And that's astonishing when you think about it. That means you could decimate our infrastructure. And as long as you didn't kill people, we could rebuild. Now, it would take a while. But that's why war is so destructive, because it kills human capital. For anyone saying, I don't need to study intellectual capital, there's a section in the book I had to put the brakes on really hard. And you only spend a couple of pages addressing it, but it's a whole concept of, of negative uh, intellectual capital. And I was like, this is friggin' brilliant. Th- this, th- this, this can destroy an organization you want to comment quickly about the whole concept of, of negative and, and, and of course that applies to the three, uh, to the three capitals. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's a, uh, I can't remember where I, I actually, where I first developed this. I, I think I developed it from reading Thomas soul 
And, and I just kind of said, well, that's kind of a form of negative intellectual capital. I was thinking, I think of thieves, you know, thieves can, they know how to break in the house, disarm the whatever alarm system you have, get it what they need to get. I mean, they have intellectual capital. The problem is it, it's wealth destroying. And if we go back to the definition of of what intellectual capital is, it's knowledge that can be converted into profits or probably better yet knowledge that can be converted to value uh, to create value. But either way, negative intellectual capital destroys value. So thieves, I think of Castro, his theory of communism. I mean, he set out to build the greatest city in the world. And he did Miami in Miami because he got rid of all of his human capital, all fled his country and built the greatest city in the world, Miami. I don't know if people can argue with that, but it's a great city. It's got a really cool culture, great food. Um, and I just I think that's a fascinating concept. I still can't wrap my head around it. The, the difficult thing about this book was it's these things aren't measurable. So as, as form, you know, as accountants, you and I like to measure. So we like our spreadsheets. We like to carry things out to do decimal places. But now we're kind of dealing with this like dark matter in the universe. We know it's there, but physicists can't measure it. And I feel the same way about talking about all aspects of intellectual capital. I can't measure it. My equation that you uh, read off can't be mathematically solved. Because there's no formula for effectiveness. It's a judgment. Um, there's really no formula for price. That's also, to a large degree, a judgment. And the ultimate test is the consumer. Are they willing to pay that price? Um, so these are really abstract concepts, but really important because I think they do a better job ex explaining how the world works than, say, the traditional accounting equation that you and I were taught. Let's delineate between tacit and explicit knowledge. So when I think of human capital, that was one of the first concepts I thought of in the book. And I absolutely love it. And by the way, there's a whole show and we'll have this in the show notes where you address this in the, the soul of enterprise, but explain why that is so critical tacit versus explicit knowledge in the firm. Yeah. I love this breakdown. And I think it was Michael Polanyi, who came up with it, who was Einstein's um, um, like lab assistant, <laughs> Michael Polanyi. And I forget the book, but um, he made this distinction between tacit and explicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is you, you know, you could uh, pick up a tax form, a 1040, if you were a tax practitioner. And if I asked you, Mark, what are the first seven lines on a 1040? You'd be able to tell me, you know, address, number of, you know, marital status, number of dependents down to the W-2 line. And you'd probably be able to go even farther. Um, that's explicit knowledge. It can be captured. It can be put somewhere. It's low bandwidth. If, if, um, I give you a presentation on PowerPoint, if, uh, the book you're holding, the book we're talking about is a form of explicit knowledge, it's documented. It's, it's captured somewhere. Tacit knowledge is more sticky. It's unfolded. It's, it's unex, it, it can't be articulated. Um, you know, there's a great story and I forget who said this, but it, it was about a student, a uh, first grader who wrote a letter home and then got to second grade and he's trying to write a letter home to his parents. And the teacher says, what's the problem? He says, well, 
I, I know so much more than I can say, you know, because he's learned, he's learned in that one year. And that's kind of what tacit knowledge is. We all know more than we can articulate, especially in, in, in your areas of expertise. Um, so when you write a book, even like, you know, I read your CFO book. That's about to come out. Is that right? Is so, it out? I'll explain Soon. why Good. it's taken so okay. long. Nope. No worries. Um, but you, you know, is that's a form of explicit knowledge, but that's tacit knowledge dumped out of your head, made explicit. But my guess is there's no way that you captured everything that you know about being CFO. Not even close. Uh, not even close. And so the way I like to explain this is the difference between explicit and tacit knowledge is. If I could pick up a Jack Nicholas's golf, my way book, that would be explicit knowledge. And I, it would, if I followed it and practiced it, I'd probably become a better golfer. But if I got to play around with Jack for 18 holes, that's tacit knowledge. Cause I'm going to get in situations, you know what, that aren't in his book. Like, how do I get out of this buried bunker lie? Or how do I hit the club upside down or use a left-handed club behind a tree here on this shot? Now, how do you do these things, Jack? He'd be able to show me. And that's tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is very high bandwidth and it's very expensive to transfer. So think about it for all of our advances in technology, education, MOOC, you know, court massive online courses, all, all of this way that we can learn new things. It still costs a fortune to educate a doctor. Why? Because a ton of that knowledge is tacit. And it's always going to be that way until, you know, Musk figures out how to upload our brain and, you know, put your brain into mine or something like that, which I don't think is ever going to happen. But um, tacit knowledge is very, very expensive. And um, that just, to me, that's a really useful distinction because when you look at when you look at tools such as the after action review, which I'm a big fan of, um, that is a way to capture the tacit knowledge that's in the team's head and capture some of it and make it explicit so the organization can re leverage it. This is where that quote from the HP guy, you know, if HP knew what HP knows, we'd be three times more profitable. Well, how many organizations recreate the wheel? How many times did you and I do? I don't know where you started. KPMG if it was an audit, but I started an audit and they would give me an assignment and I would have no idea how to do it. I've never done it before. Sure. I'd get to look at last year's work papers, but it wouldn't tell me the process they used. It would show me the result. And I was thinking if I would have been able to read a couple of after action reviews, not only would I have been more efficient, yes. I would have been more effective. And, and, and that's a form of, you know, so we don't have to recreate the wheel every time the, the military's got a great saying, we never want to build the same bridge twice. Um, another interesting thing about tacit knowledge is a lot of it is local and specialized. So your barber knowing exactly how you like your haircut without you, you just sit down in his chair. He knows exactly what to do. Your, your local coffee shop, knowing exactly how you like your coffee. Uh, the realtors knowing where the good schools are and the good neighborhoods and what's going on in those neighborhoods and the homes in those neighborhoods, and the prices and all of that. That's a form of tacit knowledge. And Friedrich Hayek thought that that knowledge was, is just as scientific as the greatest scientific theories coming out of universities or physics. But it was localized. It was distributed um, like Bitcoin is distributed amongst all of our minds. But it's incredibly valuable. 
and it's really hard to capture or transfer. So that's why I think that distinction between tacit and explicit knowledge is so powerful. So if anyone wants to know why I love the soul of enterprise, that answer, it's just don't stop, Ron, don't stop. And one, <laughs> one of the questions I've been eager to ask, I, I think everyone has that one question they look forward to asking, and it's, and it's my next one. Whether you're a professional services firm, retailer, uh, manufacturer, could even be a, a nonprofit, what's the best way to harness? And I was trying to think of the right word, not the word manage. What's the best way to harness human capital? Treat them like volunteers. I think this is one of the greatest lessons from Peter Drucker. Human capital investors, whatever you want to call them, your human capital really at the end of the day volunteers. Because whether or not they come back into the organization and continue to invest their intellectual capital into your business is totally volitional. It's totally up to them. And therefore, you got to treat them like volunteers. And Peter Drucker spent a good part of the latter part of his life spending about half his time studying not-for-profits and working, consulting with not-for-profits. He wrote a great book called Managing the Nonprofit. Uh, for and anybody who's involved in that sector needs to read that book. It's terrific um, because he thought there were many lessons that businesses could learn from not profits and vice versa. Um, and one of the things he said about a not profit, he said, look, he said, the purpose is what what is what motivates people to to contribute their creativity and their dynamism and their, you know, everything about what they do and be passionate about it and have a higher purpose. That's done in the not-for-profit world. And we all know somebody who's a CFO or some other executive in the not-for-profit. They're not paid all that great, but they do it even at great personal sacrifice because they believe in the mission. They believe they're making a dent in the universe. And Drucker thought that there was a lesson there. You know, why can't we do the same thing in the business world? Why, why do we have to bribe people with money to get that same level or even, you know, have that same level of commitment out of uh, the private sector. And um, I think that's how you can really start to understand that, especially knowledge workers, we're the most educated, most productive, most value producing sector of our economy. And I, I, I hate that because it sounds elitist, but there's no other way to say it. Um, it's true. And you got to realize that they want more than just a good paycheck. They're going to make that anyway, just because of the market, the competition is going to take care of that. They want to. They want to work for something more than, you know, having good product. I, I, I listen to these business people talk on and on about how important processes and systems, efficiency, and all of this. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, that that that's got its place. But I'm telling you, nobody works at Google because Google has great processes. They work at Google because they're trying to, you know, catalog the world's data or whatever, whatever their current mission is. I mean, it's got to be something that's inspiring. And that can't be based on efficiency. It's got to be based on something higher. I want to talk a little bit about structural capital. It's very important, but because of time, we'll kind of gloss over it. But I, I want to mention a line that came from, I believe, Paulo Byrne, building the invisible balance sheet. Loved that line, building the invisible balance sheet. What did he mean? He meant a lot of things by that, but mostly... Um, at least in my experience, O'Byrne and Kennedy, um, the firm, they're, they're chartered accountants in London, outside of London. 
um, were one of the first professional firms ever to implement the after action review idea. And they really, you know, it was a learning. It was a cultural, big cultural change in their organization. So, of course, you know, they had some missteps and they took three steps forward and two steps, sometimes four steps back before they figured out really how to do it right. But he said, look, he said, a lot of firms won't do this because the first objection they're going to throw at you with all this knowledge management capturing, you know, tacit knowledge, trying to make some of it explicit and reuse it is they're going to say, well, but this takes time. This is going to cut into billable hours. This is going to cut into our revenue model. And he said, no, it's not. It's building your invisible balance sheet. It's making your firm more valuable because you're going to have documented processes and systems and other things that that actually work, that actually improve future performance, unlike, say, timesheets or the annual performance appraisal that do not improve future performance. But think of the, the another two great examples, by the way, of, of negative intellectual capital, the timesheet and the annual performance appraisal. But think of the amount of time that we put into that, that we don't really get any better superior performance in the future. And that's why he liked to explain to accountants, yeah, effectiveness is, is, is requires more thought, more reflection, more time because of the after action reviews, but you're going to build that invisible balance sheet and that's going to make your firm more valuable when you go to sell it. Let's talk about social capital, Ron. I had never heard that term before until I started listening to the show. And, and again, I'm, I'm being transparent with my ignorance, but you've already shared a little bit about what it is, but uh, what what is social capital? Or you can answer the question, why is social capital? Why do we need to be aware of it? There's been some books written about it, I think, after this one came out. Robert Putman, uh, his book, Bowling Alone, he's a Harvard sociology professor. And he talked about the decline of social capital. And he thought it was, you know, he, one of the indicators was, well, look, there's no more bowling leagues. There's not as many bowling leagues as there used to. That's why it was called bowling alone. And social capital is kind of, there's different ways to say it. It's kind of an umbrella term to capture our moral capital, our cultural capital, our religious capital. Um, social capital, obviously, interactions with other humans, no man's an island, um, my favorite definition of this, actually, and it's kind of semi-crude, uh, not crude that you have to worry about bleeping anything, but it's a great thought experiment. Um, wh- one of the authors I really admire is Alvin and Heidi Toffler, two, two authors, actually, husband and wife. Uh, and he wrote Future Shock and all of that. But he wrote a great book called Knowledge and Power, I believe, um, or something like that. It's very similar to Gilder's title. Um and he used to speak to business audiences. And when he got to social capital, he'd ask them a question. And the question was, what's it worth to your organization that your employees are potty trained? And that's how he described social capital. Now, it stuck with me because it's kind of crude and it's kind of funny and it makes people laugh. But there's some deep, profound point in that, in that that's how we transmit values and norms from one generation to another. Um, and this is how things stick around that are useful. This is why, you know, GK Chesterton's got that Chester Chesterton fence idea. If you, if you buy a piece of property and you're walking out uh, among the perimeter and you see a fence somewhere and you think, well, 
this is ridiculous. There's, there's no reason for why is this fence here? You better not take it down till you figure out why it's there was his whole point. Cause there may be a really good reason why that fence is there. So it's kind of the norms and customs and traditions that live on what, what I think also Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. That's how the past speaks to us is through that social capital. And it's, it, it's, I know it's a very ethereal concept. It's, it's like the dark matter in the universe. But when you think about it in terms of the crude way that Toffler put it about being potty trained, you realize this is a really important function. This is why parents may be the ultimate entrepreneurs. Uh, you and Ed on the soul of enterprise, you all like, um, uh, NPS, not promoter score. Do you feel like some businesses were trying to get it right, maybe not getting it right and trying to measure social capital? And again, we talked earlier that not all intellectual capital can be adequately measured. And even if we do, probably going to get it wrong. But of all the three capitals that we've addressed, this is the one where maybe Firms are trying to come up with some numbers so they can act on it. Do you think we're getting it right or is there still work or do we need to maybe lay off and just observe? You mean in the context of NPS? Yes. Or, or, or any type of measurement of social capital. Now I'm equating, I'm, I'm, I'm affiliating NPS more so with, social capital than the other two. So that's why I bring up NPS rightly or uh, wrongly. It's a great question. Um, again, it's the least leveraged, I think of the, of the three types of intellectual capital, social, human, structural, it's the least leverage. It's the one that is uh, least understood and probably hardest to grasp. Um, a couple answers to this, Mark, it's a great question. Um, my, my colleague, Dan Morris, who runs a CPA firm in Silicon Valley, he, since I've known him, dating, going, going back to 1996, he's had this vision of uh, the concierge service model. He said, when I go to a hotel and I need something, no matter what it is, some type of booze or a restaurant recommendation, theater tickets, what, I just go to the concierge and, you know, in a, in a good, High class establishment, Rich Carlton, Force. I mean, they're going to do it. They're going to figure out whatever it is you need. You're taken care of. He goes, That's what I want for my CPA firm. He says, I don't want to be a one stop shop. He says, Because we can't do everything and I want to focus on just specific things. But I want to be the first stop shop because he says, Chances are, if they call me up and say, Hey, I'm new in town, who's a good plumber? Who's a good dentist? And this could be two in the morning with a toothache, right? Now, Dan says, chances are I've got somebody in my network who can solve their problem like that, and I can give them a referral. And one of the reasons his customers love him is because he refers them business. He'll stick his neck out and give that referral because he knows his customers are really good, give great service and all of that. He really tries to leverage that even on his onboarding process. He has a form that he makes individuals fill out. Where were you born? Where were you raised? What school did you go to? Because he'll start making connections. Ah, this person grew up in, in, you know, St. Paul, Minneapolis. And I've got these three other clients who grew up there. Maybe he'll put them together at some point because they have commonalities or whatever. That, that's an incredible way to do it. It's slow. It's clunky. 
it takes a lot of, you know, tacit knowledge to be able to make those connections. It's a synthesis, but it's incredibly valuable. And I don't think we pay enough attention to that. I will give the big four credit for being great at their alumni networks. Yes. They, they keep those going. I know you want to talk about something with respect to that. You have some great examples, but that is a great example of leveraging that, that social capital. The other thing I would say about this, Mark, is and, and, and this, this is just coming off the top of my head based on your question. Are we getting good at measuring sort of this? And the MPS score made me think about it. I think the subscription business model gets us closer to, the, to this because the subscription business model is not concerned with how many units did you sell. We need to stop counting the number of hamburgers McDonald's sells and the number of iPhones. You know, nobody cares or the box office take of these various movies. It, it, it's it's becoming an irrelevant metric. Um, what matters is, you know, what is the revenue from each customer and lifetime value? And the problem with lifetime value of customers is it has to be modeled and projected. And we accountants don't do a great job with that. We're not good modelers. And we're not good projectors. Um it doesn't show up anywhere on our income statement, so we kind of ignore lifetime value, and we're so caught up in that math of the moment that we forget about lifetime value. And I think the subscription model gets us a closer to the goal of starting to quantify the benefits of some of this intellectual capital structural thinking, um, and I think that's that's really powerful. Um, the other thing I would say is. And, and this is just taking this one step further. When we talk about lifetime value, and if, by the way, in that new equation that you read off that started off with, what was it? Uh, pr- what was the first thing? Not revenue profitability, but it was customer profitability. Um, that would now be lifetime value in a subscription world. But I also want firms to think about this, not just what is the customer worth over their lifetime to our business, Turn the telescope around and ask yourself, what is the business worth over the lifetime of the customer? And I think this is what Apple, Intel, all these other companies try and do. And that's why they're really good innovators, because they're constantly looking for new ways to add value to our lives. And Apple's probably the greatest success at this. But if you think about Intel, 100% of their revenue comes from products that didn't exist three years ago. That. That's an amazing innovation curve. I think Apple something like 50%. Um, and they got to keep that up. And that's a great way to think about how we can stay relevant in, in a competitive dynamic market. For, uh, too long of an answer, I know, but it was a great question. I'm trying to be cognizant of time. Do you have time for a quick lightning round? Absolutely. This is unscripted. Well, scripted for me, but unscripted for you. It's like, what is going, what's he going to do? Uh, this is not called stump the expert, but we're going to do a little word association here. And you're one of these kind of people. I don't think you need a, you don't need a script. You don't need an agenda. You don't need your notes. I bet you could go up and do a speech, just talk off the cuff really easily. I bet. So let's see what you have to say. I'm going to mention two terms. I'm going to put two terms together, two nouns together and just say what comes to mind, and and let's just see how this goes. You're giving me a Rorschach test, right? Uh-oh. I haven't uh, had this since therapy. <clears throat> human capital, human capital, and Amazon. Human capital, 
and Amazon, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Wow. Um, just how they need a lot less of it. If you think about the number of employees, and I know they're one of the biggest employers in the world with 1.3 million or whatever, but if you stop and think about what it is they do, they do an enormous amount with fewer people, just like Facebook and Google do compared to, you know, industrial organizations of old. Um, plus without the human capital, that business is kind of worthless. And that's how I think about Google too. I mean, Google could, could be located anywhere. The two founders could, could uh, move anywhere they wanted to in the world, but uh, they're still dependent upon that human capital that makes Google value because again, it's 80% of the world's wealth. So that must mean it's 80% of a business's uh, value creating ability as well. See, you're, you're going to nail this. Number two, <laughs> Social capital, and I, I know you just love sports, Ron. So I, I listen. I listen to the show. I, social capital and the National Football League. Oh, by the way, you can put in any sport you want, but I just said social capital and the National Football League, the NFL. What comes to mind? Wow, I, you know, sports has to be one of the greatest. Le- I'm, I'm so glad you asked this because it. I've never thought of this until now, but it is one of the greatest examples of leveraging social capital. And let's stick with the NFL because I, I love the NFL. Um, they do a crappy job knowing about their fans. The NFL has no idea what team I root for. They have no idea if I'm a season ticket holder. They have no idea how many games I watch on TV, how many games I go to live, how many away games I've been to. They know nothing about me. If they were a subscription-based business, they would know everything about me. They'd be able to use that to monetize and and provide me with more value, right? Like sell me merch or or whatever. Um, and and so social capital. I mean, it's kind of tribal. We all obviously, you know, love to get together as fans and go to the game together and all of that. Um, we bet on our teams, which is just enormously stupid from a finance standpoint, right? We should bet against our team. That way, if they lose, we feel dejected as fans and are sad, but at least we get some money, right? We diversified our portfolio. But no, we're all in on our teams. We Sports, I, there's a great line, and I've been meaning to say this on the show. Sports is the only thing that we can commit totally to without consequence. And that's why I think we're so fanatical about it. And it is a great bonding um, from a social capital standpoint. If, I, if I'm in Europe and I see somebody with a San Francisco 49er hat, logo, shirt, instant bond. I mean, it's an instant bond that we're both Americans, even though he may be from Illinois and I'm from California. But boy, if I see a 49er, oh, well, we could sit on the train and talk for hours. Number three. See, again, you're nailing this. Unscripted, you're nailing it. Structural capital. You're thinking, what's he going to say? Structural (laughs) capital and Toyota. What comes to mind? Oh, boy. The Toyota production system. Uh, Toyota's philosophy. Toyota's ability to take, I think it's over a million ideas from the floor, from factory workers, and implement a good chunk of them. Um, the, the, uh, the Toyota university, I forget the guy's name. Is it may? Yeah. I'm sure you know the, uh, yeah, gr- great book. Um, it, to- Toyota 
continues to amaze me. They make fantastic cars, unbelievable market capitalization, probably still bigger than the big three that, you know, at least in the, in the States, very innovative. Um, I, I, I love Toyota. I, 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 the founder, even before he made cars, um, he just, he just knew what was important. He didn't do cost accounting. They're a pioneer in that. They don't, they don't have any negative intellectual capital when it comes to fanatical devotion to cost accounting. They don't have GM's attitude. You know, Bob Lutz summed it up great. He said, I'd rather sell 4 million cars at a profit than 5 million at a loss. And that's kind of where GM's been stuck because of their, their fanatical devotion to market share. Now I know Toyota's got some of that too. The, the big players all want to be the number one automobile in terms of units, right? But um, if any one of them can pivot and innovate better, I, I wouldn't bet against Toyota. Now, I'd also recommend Prava Beyond Measure. Again, another book yes. that you've recommended on the show. Uh, we do have a second round, but I'm going to save that for a third interview. I, I hope okay. we get to have you back. But this this was fun. Hey, the, the first time we had you on, uh, we asked about some of your favorite books. I think one of them, if memory serves correctly, Humanocracy by Gary Hamill. Uh, what's a, a book or two this year that has been sticky uh, in your mind? Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, I should have known you were going to ask me this because I listened to your show for crying out loud. And I know you ask everybody this. I'm actually pulling up and looking at my list uh, of books I've read this year, Mark. And and I, I feel like a pauper compared to you because didn't you just do a show I don't know, about a month or so ago and somebody interviewed you and you had read like 80 books so far this year? No, it wasn't 80, Ron. It was 60. Well, well, well OK, still, right. still uh, uh, that that impressed the heck out of me um, because there's there's been some books I've read this year that have really blown my mind uh, and we will do a show on this. Um, w- one of them was and i just think and this is any guy out there that hears this is going to think what is he talking about there is no way i would be interested in a book like this because that's exactly what i felt about this book it's called the fabric of civilization how textiles made the world now the reason i read it was because the author virginia postrell is wonderful. She's a beautiful writer. I've been a huge fan of hers for the longest time. And I just knew anything she writes is going to be beautiful. But I'll tell you, Mark, this is a phenomenal business book. You would not believe how complex and how much tacit knowledge there is in fabrics. And the thing was, it was kind of developed around the world. Different people came to the same uh, methods and systems and just, and she documents it all. And it's beautiful. She talks about what's going to happen in the future with fabrics and, and all of that. She even kind of challenges some of the conventional wisdom. She doesn't call it the stone age. She calls it the string age. She goes, you could have just as easily called this the string age because the invention of string was an amazing. It allowed us to carry things. It allowed us to, you know, sew a stone on the edge of and make a hammer, you know, on the edge of a piece of wood. And, and just, it just, It'll blow your mind. I, I absolutely love that book. I don't know if you guys mentioned it on a show or or in a bonus episode, but I, I got the book and I haven't read it yet, but I, I'm looking forward to, to going through it. It's highly rated 
uh, on Amazon. So good, good selection, good pick. Uh, again, I cannot thank you enough. I, I, it was just an honor having you on back in 2020. I think you were one of our first 10 or so guests and you said, absolutely. And I just thought you're such a generous individual. We've had a couple of individual uh, one-to-one conversations and I just, I admire have the greatest affection for you, sir. And uh, just thank you for everything you do uh, within the world of not just accounting firms, but all professional services firms. Anybody, even in retail, manufacturing can gain uh, from what you have to, to share uh, really with, with all of us. So again, thank you for being on. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate that. And it's always a pleasure. And I'm happy to come back anytime you want. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Now you know why I love the Soul Enterprise so much with Ron Baker. Ron, thank you very much. Again, why do we need to study intellectual capital? Well, Ron said it, and I love this line he said, 80% of the wealth in those countries is in our minds. What countries? OECD member countries or the G20 countries. Again, 80% of the wealth in those countries is in our minds. But remember, some of those countries have very limited, if any, natural resources. That's why we need to study intellectual capital. Again, recommend the book. It's Mind Over Matter, which, by the way, it's the third book in the intellectual capitalism series. The first one is Pricing on Purpose. The second book is Measure What Matters to Customers. Hey, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. Again, this is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.